0: Hello and welcome to the 1.7 million stories of the CWGC where we explore the history of the First and Second World Wars, discover some of the stories of those who served and died during both conflicts and discuss the work of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. My name is Alexelia and I'll be your host today. We'll be discussing the D-Day landings and some of the inspiring stories of courage of the men and women involved. This time I'm joined by Lanelle Housen who's one of the Commission's historians, and Kirsty Mills, who's been working on the Voices of Liberation project over the last year or so. How are you both?
1: I'm good, thanks. Hi, I'm good, thanks.
0: Last weekend, Saturday the 6th of June, marked the 76th anniversary of the largest amphibious attack in history, which happened in 1944 when the Allies invaded Normandy as part of Operation Overlord. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what happened on D-Day when the Allies landed on the beaches and the following campaign in Normandy, hearing interviews from a handful of veterans who were there and discovering some of the roles women had during this historic event. And later, I'll be chatting to David Loveridge, CWGC's Area Director for Canada and the Americas and Marie-Eve Valencourt from the Juno Beach Centre about the role of Canadians on D-Day.
2: You know, they're in a box, a steel box, coming off a ship and, and the waves were high. Uh, they were with their compadres and, you know, their colleagues in, in those landing craft. They didn't see anything. They could hear the bullets firing. They could hear them around them. Um, and then all of a sudden the ramp opens up. Um, some of them made it to the beach. Some didn't make it all the way to the beach. So they were exiting those landing craft in, in, in the water.
0: It's incredibly hard for us to imagine what it must have been like to land on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, but films and TV shows like Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers provide an opportunity for us to gain some idea of what happened. Many of these shows are influenced by veteran testimony. As part of CWGC's liberation campaign over the last year and a half, We've been gathering audio interviews with veterans from around the Commonwealth. And Kirsty, you've been involved a lot in this project. What's it like meeting with and speaking to veterans?
1: Um, So obviously in this episode, we're speaking about stories of courage and bravery. Uh, And I think one of the most striking things for me in speaking to many of these veterans was how they all insisted that they were never brave or fearless or heroic. Um, I know it's become a bit of a cliche nowadays for the war generation to say, oh I was no hero Um, but it was really something that they genuinely all did Um, and you mentioned Band of Brothers at the start Alex and that series ends with a really touching moment where Major Dick Winters mentions a conversation with his grandson um, and his grandson asked him oh grandpa were you a hero in the war and and he replies saying no but I served in a company of heroes and I think that's become a bit of a cliche but actually there were a few similar moments in many of the interviews that we conducted where they said exactly things like that, which was really quite poignant. So even though each and every one of them had their own very individual experience and memories, and clearly faced moments that are required to be courageous and fearless, uh, probably above, any, above and beyond anything we could imagine today, it was really interesting that they all um, said these same sorts of things. One example that particularly stood out for me was an interview I did with Robert Gale who sadly passed away just recently. Uh, I went to his home and we spoke about his war experiences and we talked perhaps for an hour and a half two hours Uh, and just as I was wrapping up the interview his daughter jumped in and said oh dad you haven't told her about your medal and it turned out that Bob had been awarded the Distinguished Service Medal for his actions on D-Day. He had stood up on the front of his landing craft and as it was coming into Gold Beach Um, with total disregard for his own life, he started pushing and kicking minds out of his path as it approached the beach. Um, And I just thought it was really remarkable that he hadn't even thought to mention this throughout the whole time we'd been talking. As much as it is a cliche to talk about stories of courage and bravery, when you talk about these interviews with veterans um, and say that these men are always really humble, um, and you know, oh, I'm no hero. I think it was the most fascinating thing for me was to see that they all genuinely thought stories we might perceive now to be courageous and extraordinary were just a part of them doing their duty.
0: We're going to be playing a few clips from the Sound Archive and first up Kirsty you've chosen Ken Cook Tell us a little bit about him before we hear his interview.
1: So Ken Cook was serving with the 7th Battalion of the Green Howards when he landed on Gold Beach on D-Day. I think the little clip from his interview to follow is particularly poignant because for many of us, as you mentioned before, Alex, we view the war through the lens of Hollywood epics like Saving Private Ryan. Um, But actually in doing these interviews, it was really interesting to hear from the veterans themselves what little details they remember 75 years on. So most of the time they didn't really talk so much about the actual action um, and it was really fascinating to hear what it was about D-Day that they personally remembered so vividly.
3: Now people have asked me what was it like. Well to me as an 18 year old it was like a, a Boy Scouts adventure. I'd never been on a ship before. I'd only been on that beach once when I was a little, little kid. And it was all excitement to me. My friend... Ken Smith, he says he wasn't frightened; he was terrified. But I was opposite to him. I don't know why. I, I was uh, as we were going into the beach. I was leaning on the side of the landing craft, watching the battleships, the rockets, and all the noise and carry-on that was going on the beach. And that's what I was doing. Just I was well. I, I won't say enjoying it, but. Uh, it was just like a, a big giant fireworks night to me. You couldn't see the beach at first for smoke and dust and different things. Anyway, we landed on the uh, on Gold Beach and my feeling was as I stepped into the water and I had the same feeling as people who walking down the street, accidentally stepping a puddle of water where it's been raining. They said, what do you I said, what do you say? Oh, look at my socks all wet through. And that's my explanation of of how I felt when I landed on Gold Beach. All I was bothered about was my wet socks. Bothered about the shells, the bullets, or whatever was happening round about me. My wet socks, when am I going to get them dried or changed or whatever?
0: That's so interesting. Of all the things he could have remembered from that point in his life, it was his wet socks.
4: It's so amazing to me, uh, whenever you read or listen to veteran testimony, uh, some of the, what seems to us, quite random things uh, that stick in their mind. He's chosen uh, such a wonderful picture there to give us all, because we all know how terrible it is to just uh, stick a sock uh, into something and make your foot wet. And that uh, in amongst all of the, you know, loudness and the importance of this huge thing that he was taking part in, that this is what he he likes to tell people afterwards, they are part of a um, hundred thousand people, more than a hundred thousand people heading towards Normandy, they're part of turning the tide in the Second World War, uh, they're part of taking to the, the fight back to Europe um, in order to drive uh, the German forces out of France, drive them into Germany and end the war, And yet, what he remembers is how awful it was to have wet feet.
1: I think for me, it's been really interesting listening back to a lot of these interviews and realising that although there are particular days like D-Day that today seems so notable and are so prevalent um, and, you know, we have these big anniversary celebrations, but. They weren't necessarily seen that way by the people that were then? It was another day in the war,
4: but it was a day in the war that they and everybody in the Allied um, forces and the people at home had been waiting for. They didn't necessarily know that they had been waiting for June 6th, but they knew that they had been waiting for the day when there would be an amphibious landing on the coast of France. They had known this from Dunkirk. Back in 1940, this is not only the greatest amphibious operation we've ever seen in history, but this is something that really did take four years to prepare for. And even down to the few weeks before, they were still not sure that their factories had made enough of the landing craft that they needed to put the numbers of men on the beaches which they had planned to do. And
0: how long did Operation Overlord last for?
4: So uh, they went in on June the 6th and their objectives uh, in the short term were to get far enough into france with enough people so that no matter what the nazi forces could throw at them they wouldn't be pushed back into the sea um and they were hoping to get as far inland as uh the city of Caen on the first day but that was probably a bit uh ambitious shall we say uh, and it actually took them until really the end of august to be all the way out of normandy and Paris was liberated on the 25th of August.
0: Let's hear from another veteran, Ken Hay. Am I right in saying he was a soldier in the infantry, Kirsty?
1: Yeah, so Ken Hay served with the 4th Battalion of the Dorsetshire Regiment and he was actually one of the first veterans I was lucky enough to interview. He was actually still in training on D-Day, but in our interview he said he remembered being in training the day it happened and seeing all the planes going overhead and, and knowing something big was occurring. Um, But within the next few days, his battalion were packed up and shipped off to France as reinforcements to the first big wave of the invasion. Um, I think he eventually arrived in France on the 23rd of June, so a couple of weeks after D-Day. And in the clip we're about to play, he talks a little bit about arriving in France and seeing the absolute devastation left behind from the first two weeks of bitter fighting.
5: I was running up this this road by myself and there was this line of chaps all, all laying on the side of the road, all asleep. And I called out, what are you doing? And then I realised that the one in front only had half a body, Uh, and it was quite vicious. There was obviously a patrol going out and they'd been caught by a shell, or it must have been a shell to take the limbs off, it wouldn't be machine guns. That was a battlefield, and that was where they'd suffered.
0: That's a really vivid testimony there from Ken, and something that's hard for many of us to imagine seeing. What do you think, Kirsty?
1: I think one of the the most striking things about these interviews is that most of the veterans who are surviving now that we spoke to are of a younger generation of soldiers. So most of those we spoke to were just 18 years old or so on D-Day. And during the interview you've just heard a clip from, Ken turned to me and asked if I went to sixth form and asked whether I remember what it felt like to be that age. Uh, And then he asked if I could put myself in his shoes for a moment and imagine the horrendous things he'd just described and asked how how I would have felt seeing that battlefield as essentially a schoolchild. And I think that's something that nothing of us can imagine now, but sadly it was something that was the norm for a whole generation of young boys back then.
0: Next, we're going to hear from Donald Hunter.
1: Kirsty, what's his story? Donald Hunter served with the Merchant Navy, so he spent most of D-Day offshore ferrying troops across the Channel to the beaches. Um, so his experience was obviously very different to that of both the Kens we've just heard from. But the clip we're about to play next shows how those who were involved in the landings from the water experienced that day.
6: To give you some idea, when we were landing troops on Juneau Beach, that was our area beach, we were, we were assigned to certain parts of the beachhead and uh we were we were putting our troops ashore under fire, and there was uh landing craft coming out with black bags with with the the dead and quite near us was a ship old old merchant navy ship it was uh i wonder why it's flying a black black flag and subsequently after i some time later uh i knew what I knew what they were doing they were bringing the bodies back in black bags, and they were laying them on the deck, and they had the the, the, uh, the crew, not the, well, special special branch, I suppose, of the army, who were then identifying, they were opening, and we could see it all happening, it was quite close, it was right just alongside us, and uh, opening and taking the dog tags and recording the dead. The wounded were taken to another ship, but they were called coffin ships, and that was a terrible blow for a young man. It was my first, Well I mean the initial assault was enough and the troops going in and coming out and dead bodies and I thought this is ghastly, you know it is ghastly and Mm. that was a shock but uh, anyway I was very lucky so I came through it but uh, yes it was uh, very bloody. I, I see it vividly but it's difficult to transfer the actual horrors of it at the time.
1: I think building on what I said earlier about Ken, uh, Donald reiterates in, in that clip the fact that this really was a terrible blow for a young man to see all these bodies. Um, I think a lot of veterans skirted around talking about their experience in any real depth of detail in a, in a lot of the interviews we did and obviously the ones that we've chosen here are, are both quite graphic. Um, I imagine, obviously, it wasn't something they particularly wanted to remember or, or talk about, um, but those that did bring it up always said something about it being really quite difficult to put the horror into words of how horrendous that day was. I uh, think Donald Hunter was
4: 18 uh, when he was a radio operator on one of these landing ships. Uh, He was on a landing ship infantry, so he was actually going all the way up onto the beach to open the gate and, and, and let loads of infantry out into the battle.
3: And
0: Linnell, obviously the people on the ground were a big part of the Normandy campaign, but they weren't the only ones involved. If we look at the hospital ships themselves, their nursing staff were women, weren't they?
4: They absolutely were, yes. Um, So the hospital ships that were in the channel um, in the early days of the invasion, the nursing staff were women. And um, there were also nursing staff in the uh, mobile hospitals that were just waiting to come over. As soon as there was enough room in the beachhead, they were gonna bring full-on hospitals under tents across into France and uh, and of course bring nurses with them. So throughout the Second World War, nurses are in um, nursing really quite close to the front line. And really, it's important to think of the sea as being the front line all the time, because it was very dangerous for anybody to go to sea in ships during the Second World War. The U-boat threat was huge from the beginning until literally the end, uh, with some ships being sunk even on V-Day or shortly before. Um, And the other very dangerous thing at sea were sea mines. Um, You wouldn't run into one in the middle of the Atlantic, but in the English Channel, oh heck yeah, there were sea mines um, and unfortunately, um, a hospital carrier ship called the Amsterdam was hit and sunk by a sea mine off the coast of Normandy. Um, And uh, this was a lovely ship. It was actually a purpose-built hospital ship, so it wasn't something that had been turned into it from like a pleasure cruiser. So from a staff perspective, they were excited to work on it because it was a really great, up-to-date, modern um, piece of uh, emergency medical care facility. So in fact, uh, a nurse called Molly Evershed wrote to her sister when she knew she was going to be attached to this ship and she'd gone to see it. She said, it's amazing. It is an absolutely smashing ship and I can't wait to make a worthwhile contribution to the war by serving on it. So she was serving on the Amsterdam with nurse-in-charge fields on the 7th of August when they struck a mine, and the ship um, was full of uh, badly wounded soldiers. And uh, they knew that these wounded uh, soldiers, of course, would not be able to get themselves off the ship by themselves, unaided. And so they, uh, these two nurses went um, up and down, up and down, into the sinking ship to go and fetch as many patients as they could and they were able to save 75 men before the ship sank with both of them still on board trying to rescue people. So these two wonderfully brave ladies are commemorated by name on our Bayeux Memorial because they have no known grave or no grave but the sea.
0: I think it's really important to remember that even though they weren't on the front line, they were still putting themselves in harm's way to help others. Can you tell us a bit more about where those who lost their lives during the fighting on D-Day and the Normandy campaign are now commemorated?
4: Uh, Today, we commemorate over 22,800 servicemen in Normandy who died in June, July and August of 1944. And we do this work in 97 cemeteries and on the Bayeux Memorial. We have over 100 cemeteries in uh, the Normandy area Uh, but I was looking just really specifically at the ones that have dead in them from those three months. And uh, those cemeteries are a beautiful cross-section of the commission's approach to commemoration. There are some really, really large ones, ones that people who are listening may have been to on a visit to battlefields or just to a nice place in France on holiday. They may have gone to Bayeux War Cemetery where we have uh, just under 4,000 burials. Um, There are six other really large cemeteries and then it ranges right down through smaller and smaller and smaller um, until you get to just a few very little ones left um, uh, as they were first made uh, immediately after the fighting or during the fighting with just relatively small numbers of people in. Kirsty, you've spoken to some veterans
0: about visiting our sites and their fallen comrades. Tell us what it means for them to be able to visit a place where they can remember their friends.
1: Yeah, so interviewing these veterans for me was a pretty moving and quite humbling experience, uh, especially those who spoke to us about, um, about close friends commemorated by CWGC. One of the most emotional experiences, I would say, in doing these interviews for me was during an interview with Ken Hay, who we've already heard from, um, but towards the end of our chat, he produced a poem that he'd written about his fallen comrades and about CWGC sites and asked if we'd mind if he read it out to us, which obviously we didn't. And, and halfway through the poem, his voice started to waver and it was really quite heart wrenching to hear him reading these words about uh, one of our sites. Um, I think we're going to play a clip of that poem for you now. So you'll be able to hear the emotion in his voice as he reads this poem.
5: So here we lie stilled for all time under this foreign sod, some with number and name above, some known but to God. Keep us in mind whene'er you pray, as we will pray for thee, that at the last trump we'll meet again here in eternity. When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow we gave out today.
1: I find listening back to that poem really, really quite heartbreaking. Um, Ken wasn't the only one who produced poems about her work during interviews. There are actually quite a few of them, and I think it's, it's really quite moving that you know these veterans have, have been so moved by the continued work of the commission that they've, they've gone off to write poems and, and that sort of thing about them. Obviously, a lot of them go back and continually visit every year or for big anniversaries, um, and these sites mean a lot to them. It is, uh, it's always
4: special to go and stand in front of a headstone um, and look at the information about the person and look at the inscription that the family may have asked for on the bottom and try to imagine that person and try to imagine that family and try to imagine what it meant to them for that person never to come home. Uh, but to be able to go there and know the person personally, to have fought with them, to have made them tea to to know which one of the rations they preferred to eat over all others. Um, That just must be a terribly sad, but also I hope, um, something a little bit better, um, a positive thing to be able to go and see them in a beautiful place uh, where they're um, forever uh, treated um, in the way that they really deserved for what they did and for what we owe them.
0: Thank you so much to Kirsty and Lanelle for talking to us today. We'll hear from them both a little later in the show. After the break, I'm going to be joined by David Loveridge and Marie-Eve Valencourt to learn more about Canada's involvement in the Normandy campaign. Join us in remembering the men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice for peace across the world by sharing your tribute to our Wall of Remembrance. You can share a couple of lines and a photo about a loved one by using the hashtag shareyourtribute or by visiting the website.
6: Do you want to help engage the next generation with the stories of men and women who lost their lives in the two world wars? Then join the Commonwealth War Graves Foundation today and help to support our education programmes, digital exhibitions and much more to help keep their stories alive. Visit the website to find out more at www.cwgc.org forward slash support hyphen us.
0: Okay, welcome back. Thousands of Canadian service personnel were involved in the D-Day landings on Juneau Beach. Over 1,000 Canadian service personnel were killed or wounded on D-Day most of whom are commemorated in Benny sur Canadian War Cemetery, located not far from Juneau Beach. To discuss the Canadian involvement in the Second World War and on D-Day, and some of the stories of those involved, I'm joined by CWGC's Area Director for Canada and the Americas, David Loveridge, and Exhibitions and Development Manager at the Juneau Beach Centre, Marie-Eve Valencourt. Welcome to you both.
2: Good morning good
7: morning
0: before we discuss canada 's role in d day David, can you give us some background as to why Canada was involved in the second world war in the first place
2: yeah i 'd love to so the first world war was a start for Canada, but the second world war really for us was a defining event i think in Canadian history. Um, it transformed what was a quiet sort of agrarian country on the fridges of the global affairs into a critical player in the 20th century 's most important struggle so Canada carried out a vital role in the Battle of the Atlantic, and we participated in the air war over Germany. We contributed forces to the major campaigns of Western Europe beyond, probably well beyond what might be expected of what was a really small country at the time. with uh, We only had 11 million people. Um, despite the losses of Canadian lives, the war against Germany and the Axis powers uh, sort of made canada grow up i think is probably terms that i've heard before Um, it elevated the role of women in our economy it paved the way for canada's membership in nato after uh, world war ii left canadians with a legacy of really strong legacy of uh, military service and sacrifice Um, and it's given us our military history where names such as uh, Dieppe and Hong Kong and Ortona and Juneau Beach are now part of the Canadian lexicon.
0: And Mary eve Canada played a really important role in the Allied efforts to take back Europe. Can you talk us through what Canadian forces did during the D-Day landings in Normandy?
7: Our part in D-Day is smaller, of course, than the British and the Americans, where they each have two beaches, and we only have one. Um, our role is to um, take the plains of Caen, which is uh, a city that's just beyond Juneau Beach, about 20 kilometers inland. And uh, we happen to face a really particular area in Normandy, uh, where Normandy is quite hilly and full of Bocash country. The terrain that the Canadians had to uh, fight through and fight for past D-Day uh, was flat land, so it was tank country, and this is where Canadians faced the largest amounts of German armored divisions in, in Normandy. So our, our role is, is quite high, though we, we do want to remember uh, that um, although we landed 14,000 Canadian troops on D-Day, six almost 6,000 uh, British troops augmented our ranks and allowed us to um, particularly accomplish uh, great successes with uh, special tanks and, and DD tanks and the sort um, and, and also obviously have the help of the British engineers to clear the beachhead and, and make their way
0: inland. We were listening to some veterans earlier who were recalling what happened to them on D-Day, but can either of you imagine what it must have been like for Canadian forces to land on Juneau Beach under such heavy fire?
2: So you see articles and you see documentaries on the landings in D-Day, and I think it would be very scary. You know, they're in a box, a steel box, coming off a ship, and and the waves were high. Uh, They were with their compadres and, you know, their colleagues... In, in those landing craft, they didn't see anything. They could hear the bullets firing. They could hear them around them. Um, and then all of a sudden, the ramp opens up. Um, some of them made it to the beach. Some didn't make it all the way to the beach. So they were exiting those landing craft in, in, in the water. Um, I think it would be very scary. And then when you hit the beach, they were under under fire, right from the very beginning. Um, and they're, you know, they're out fellow, Soldiers were dying around them as they were trying to get a hold onto the beach. So I think a pretty scary time for them.
7: Yeah, the obstacles to overcome right in the initial, you know, first 20 to 30 minutes of the landings are are, uh, pretty impressive. I mean, the Germans have been building these defenses and plotting them out carefully since the beginning of the occupation. So they've had time to really make sure that um, any first line of defence that, that might be overcome would be you know, uh, met by another line of defence uh, a little bit further inland. So um, the Canadians and the Allies are quite well prepared for this and it, it's a fairly successful day in terms of the losses that we sustain.
0: And after they successfully captured the stronghold of Juneau Beach, what happened as they pushed further into Normandy?
7: June sixth is is the day we tend to remember quite well. Um, however, the, the campaign uh, goes on for the whole of the summer, and we will end up with um, ninety thousand Canadians who will serve in in Normandy. Uh, there are five thousand five hundred war dead Canadian war dead uh, buried in in Normandy. So it, it's a, an enormous effort. Keeping in mind that at that time in 1944, we're already fighting uh, in Italy and have been there since 1943. Uh, we have been committed uh, to the Battle of the Atlantic with our Navy and um, have been quite active with um, the air war, with the RAF and the RCAF uh, campaigns. So. Uh, we're really stretched to the, the very thin of our limits, given that this is all of volunteer service, right? There's no um, conscription for overseas service until after the Battle of Normandy. So we really have committed as much as we could, and the sustain, uh, sustaining the losses for um, this continued fighting, uh, it becomes really, really difficult.
0: OK, so let's move on to talking about the Canadian men and women who were part of D-Day and the Normandy campaign. Are there any stories of Canadian service people who stand out for you personally?
2: Yeah, I think um, that was a tough choice. I, I know we were thinking of, of who that could be. So I reached out to uh, one of our colleagues, Max Dutton. We've chosen Chaplain Walter Brown, who's uh, buried in Benny sur Cemetery cemetery um, in France. So the cemetery itself, Benny Cermere, was selected as a location of the permanent Canadian cemetery because of its proximity to Juneau Beach. And so Chaplain Walter Brown was part of the forces that landed at Juneau Beach. Um, He was born in 1910 in Canada, in Ontario. Um, He went to university to become an Anglican minister. In April 1941, he volunteered for military service with the Canadian Chaplain Service. He was attached to the Sherbrooke Fusiliers Regiment and was one of the very first chaplains uh, to land in Normandy. So he landed in the landing craft and uh, w- with the Sherbrooke Fusiliers and, and uh, as his unit pushed inland and was helped, he, he was at the rear of those troops, but he was helping carry wounded men to aid stations and somehow got separated or somehow got surrounded and, and uh, was captured by the soldiers of the 12th SS Panzer Division. Um, he disappeared. They didn't know what happened to him. They couldn't find him. And then, um, 34 days later at the side of the road, uh, near the village of Denny Surmer um, they found his remains. Um, he'd been stabbed to death by his captors and, and left at the side of a road. So today, you know, he was one of those soldiers, um, um, an officer, obviously, but also a chaplain. Uh, he's buried in uh, Benny-sur-Mer in France. Um, and looked up his um, grave marker, his headstone, and the inscription says: uh, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Uh, John 15:13. So he's, the, he's my choice today of, uh, of one that I'd like to remember from the Normandy raid.
7: One that often uh, comes to mind for me is Captain uh, Fraser. He fought with the North Nova Scotia Highlanders and was killed June 7th um, in the actions of, of this unit, trying to take uh, a small village called Otsi, uh where the Germans uh, had, had uh, reinforced their positions quite strongly um, just beyond uh, the Abbey Dardenne, which is the high ground that the, the German uh, elite troops that arrived at midnight June 6 to, to push the Allies back at sea. And uh, he fought there. He was uh, captain of Sea Company and he uh, literally uh, was the last man uh, left there uh, holding the position. And so he ordered his men to abandon him to retreat, and he held the position uh and fired the very last round of uh his machine gun on his own until he he um, died so his actions are speak uh of the courage and the incredible um just no giving up, you know, and and actually the North um, Nova Scotia Highlanders uh, motto is uh, no retreating footsteps. Right. So he, he did just that, sacrificed himself to make sure that the Canadians would would not abandon this position. And the fighting was quite fierce around that area. Um, and it's a, it's one of those stories that that, um, you know, you, it, it's hard to uh to relate to it but uh, I, I found out more about him because a, a high school friend of his contacted us and he wanted a picture of his buddy's grave in Normandy. He'd never seen it in his entire life and here we were you know 70 years after uh, sharing photos of the grave and it meant the world to him that somebody um, you know all the way in Normandy uh, was able to Bring the information back to him. Provide him the context uh, in which his his high school buddy died, and and put uh, you know an image around the, this uh, this person. That it's left a huge imprint, I think, in Canada, where uh, those that did not go over who lost friends, you know, they go through their entire lives wondering. So that that was a pretty special moment uh, for for me. Uh, one that comes top of mind when I think of this. Uh, Cemetery.
0: Two inspiring stories there. Thank you both very much for sharing those. David, after the fighting ended, the Commission made the decision to create special Canadian war cemeteries in Normandy. Why was that?
2: That's actually a really great question, Alex, because it's it's interesting when I was again over in Europe and seeing the Canadian cemeteries, why are they there and why are they named Canadian? Um, so when the IWGC was founded, Fabian Ware wanted the cemeteries to reflect um, he wanted to reflect the cooperation that existed between all of the Allies. And so that was both in World War One and World War II. And so he thought that service personnel from so many different nations had fought together, um, and therefore they should be buried together. And so the guidelines were that that they would be buried in, in a common cemetery, that everything about it, some of our principles around, um, you know, No favoritism, no distinction would be there. Um, Canadians were a little bit different in some ways, I think, uh, and that was left over from World War I, um, where uh, they buried, they had areas where they started cemeteries, where the Canadian troops had been fighting. Um, And they named it blah, 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 Canadian Cemetery. A lot of those cemeteries were taken over by the IWGC later on, and and those names stuck. So that's part of why they were there. Um, There was still a little bit of a sort of a Canadian desire to have our troops in the Canadian Cemetery and everywhere else. And there are a few examples of that around the world. There was one, for example, Um, down in in the Italy campaign where, I think in Sicily, where we had nothing but Canadians buried there, but Canadians were the only people that had fought there. So that was a Canadian cemetery. But what's happened is uh, primarily those Canadian cemetery names were where Canadian troops had had fought and where they died and where they were initially buried. Um, but a lot of those names stuck. The cemeteries have Canadians and and people buried from all of the different uh, nations that were fighting there. Um, so it, it, now for a lot of it is it's just a name.
0: marie these cemeteries are a focus point for commemorative events and for pilgrimages made by families and veterans. What are they like to visit?
7: Well, first of all, visually, they're incredibly uh, moving because uh, they're so well-kept. But it's when you see, you know, rows upon rows and that very touching, emblematic Canadian maple leaf that is on all of the Canadian graves, which is a special feature for us Canadians for the, the Commonwealth Orders Commission. That, I think, is is very overwhelming when you walk into... Uh, you're so far away from home, you're overseas, you're traveling, you're being a tourist, and all of a sudden you're hit with, with a piece of home right there in front of you. So it's... Um, it's definitely really special, and for those who don't necessarily have a link uh, or a relative that they're specifically visiting, what we've seen more and more happening is uh, those incredible soldier research projects, with which allow students um, uh, to, uh, thanks to you know technology and digital assets that are shared, uh, the public records. You know, uh, students are tasked to assemble the life. Of a Canadian soldier and uh, they often dig up photos. So um, I've seen this uh, time and time again where a group of students will enter a cemetery and they've been prepared by their teachers. They all go off and find their soldier and um, it's overwhelming for them. They've developed this this sense of uh, understanding of that soldier's life and I think that that's a key in in transmission and memory when you can uh, be emotionally uh, impacted despite having no personal connection. And I think that that becomes shared history for real at this point.
2: Can I add something to that, Alex? I think when I went across and and toured, I must have toured 30, 40 different cemeteries. And I can tell you that I I couldn't believe how emotional it was. And so, uh, you know, I'm Retired military officer, uh, I studied military history. I love to read military history, and you read that history and you see the numbers and you understand the battles and you think, "Wow, that's incredible. But until you actually walk the ground and and see the cemeteries and see the the magnitude of the loss, um, it, it's just totally unbelievable and emotional.
7: yeah, I couldn't agree more. it's uh, it's such an important trip to make in in one's lifetime and one thing that that is deeply impressive too is the the peacefulness in these cemeteries and and i think it it humbles you it's overwhelming but then you come out of it with a sense of okay we live in peace uh there's there's no bombs falling on our heads you know uh it kind of inspires you to uh to appreciate that that uh, we live in peace and and to feel that sense of peacefulness is a a pretty powerful experience.
0: Okay, well, thank you both very much for joining me today. It's been fantastic to have you on the show and learn more about the Canadian involvement on D-Day and the Normandy campaign. And now it's time for Fast Facts. I know both Kirsty and Lynelle have been looking forward to this. I've got two Fast Facts.
4: Well, you're not (laughs) allowed to. You're only allowed one. (laughs)
0: And if you've got a fact you'd like to share, then do get in touch with us via social media. First up this time is Kirsty.
1: Okay, so my fast fact today is um, some of the most dramatic photographs taken of the Normandy landings were captured by Robert Kappa, who was a photojournalist working for Life magazine. Um, he landed with the Americans on Omaha Beach and he was in one of the earliest waves of action and he managed to take over 100 photographs of the chaos on the beaches. Um, However, sadly, after the invasion, an overexcited darkroom assistant melted the majority of these photographs that he'd taken. Um, And in the end, only eight could be salvaged. So Life magazine still ran the images uh, saying that they were blurry because Kappa's hands were shaking from the heightened drama of the moment, uh, which is obviously a really terrible, (laughs) terrible thing to have happened to this great historic, source
4: i am always sad when that story is brought (laughs) up in my presence um the 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 few salvageable images are incredibly atmospheric um aside from the ridiculous lie about his eyes being um, his hands being shaky um they do give you a feeling of much more um i don't know a feeling of of the the busyness and the rush and the danger than chaos uh, and the chaos
0: well i cannot imagine um going into the thick of it and then coming out with just eight images. Uh, I would be devastated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My fast fact today is that during the war, no metal was used in making any new non-essential items. And one thing that was really impacted by this was actually the production of makeup. Uh, Many companies had to stop using metal packaging for things like lipstick tubes and powder compacts, which meant that they had to just move to plastic. Uh, And this could actually be part of the reason why
4: it's all plastic today. That's really interesting. Uh, Plastic was super new at the time, uh, which meant that this was an opportunity to play around with like a new technology and see what they could make of it. And of course now we're just used to it and perhaps wish it would go back to being metal if metal could be better recycled. Uh, So my fast fact uh, today is that sometimes your reputation can help the war effort in a way that you might not expect. So uh, the Allied planners knew uh, that the Germans were listening to our radio traffic and uh, getting our newspapers. Um, And they knew that they rated uh, the American general Patton as being like one of our completely brilliant generals. Um, And so when they were trying to fool the Germans about our invasion plans in order to get them to think that we were invading somewhere else, we created a fake army on paper, using lots of radio traffic and news stories, and we appointed General Patton to be in charge of this uh, invasion force, because clearly we wouldn't waste him on, like, doing nothing. Like, if he's in charge, it must really be the business end of the fighting. Um, And so he was put in charge of a a force that didn't exist um, in order to use his reputation to help fool the Germans about where we were going to land. Whereas other far less famous uh, and uh, well regarded in Berlin uh, people were put in charge of the force that was actually going to hit the beach on the 6th of June, 1944.
1: Wasn't it so successful that actually they continued to believe that there was going to be a second invasion elsewhere like a, many weeks after, after D-Day, they still thought, well, there's going to be a second invasion somewhere. This is, just, this is just the first one. Yeah,
4: they're going to hit us twice because, you know, we know what they've been up to. Yeah. They really went like full theater um, in order to try uh, to make the Germans believe that they were coming to a different part of France or indeed to Norway.
0: So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for listening and a huge thanks to my guests this week, Kirsty, Linnell, David and Marie-Eve. Next time, Max Dutton will be here to discuss the Royal Navy. He'll be taking a look at the changing roles of the Navy during both World Wars, some of the stories of those who served and how we commemorate them today. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you'll get the next episode wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you like what you've heard from us so far, leave us a review and don't forget to tell your friends and family about this podcast. The 1.7 million stories of the CWGC was brought to you by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We'd like to thank our guests, Kirsty Mills, Lynell Howson, David Loveridge, and Mary Eve Valencourt. This episode was hosted by me, Alex Elia, and produced by Jack Sheeran. You can discover more about the work of the CWGC or research your own family history on our website at www.cwgc.org.